Yeah, so I think I first read a phrase in Bonhoeffer that struck me where he said that we live, and I think he might have even been talking about America. Uh, we live in the land of Protestantism without the Reformation. And I just mm. thought, man, is that not wow. true? So we have a lot of Protestant churches uh, where I'm at. We've got lots. In fact, I think we've got almost 700 churches within a 60-mile radius, the vast majority being Protestant, but without the Reformation. Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good to have you, man. Um, I don't know how long we've known each other. Been a few years now through state convention and Southern Baptist Convention connections. Tell yeah. us about your, your church. How long have you been there? Where are you from? Yeah, man. I actually am from West Texas, so this is this is home. We uh, we got married 15 years ago and kind of bounced around a little bit. Didn't think we'd be back, but uh, really, really glad the Lord called us here a little over four years ago. So we're in Abilene, Texas. A church called Southside Baptist Church, and uh, lots of transition in the last four years, but really healthy transition, uh, really, really strong church. So we're grateful to be here, and uh, Lord willing, here for the long haul. That's awesome. And how's the church going these days? How are you, how are you coming out of COVID? Well, in West Texas, COVID doesn't exist. Uh, in the minds <laughs> of many. Very different from Austin. Uh, yeah. So we we, at the very beginning, made some adjustments, but honestly, for quite a long time now, we have pretty much operated as normal. And uh, I'm thankful we didn't get hit like a lot of, a lot of churches did. Uh, a lot of people got it. We probably had 50 that, that got it, but thankfully no one was too sick. A few were very sick, but um, I don't think we've had, but maybe one pass away that had other, other complications. So all in all, um, hadn't been hit too bad in the last I feel like we might have even gotten stronger in some ways. So mm. thankful for that. Most recently, our biggest shift was we moved from being an elder rule church to being an elder-led congregational church. So just this past Sunday was our first members meeting where we voted in new members. And wow. it was extremely encouraging. Hmm. That's wow. awesome. Praise God. That's a good deal, man. So you've you've written this little book. It's uh, you know, 70, 80 pages long, the five solas. The deliberately Protestant church. Now, I to some people that just may just sound like the most exciting thing you can imagine. To others, <laughs> it just doesn't even register. Why? What was the importance? What break down the book for us? Why did you write it? What's it what's it about? Yeah, so I think I first read a phrase in Bonhoeffer that struck me where he said that we live, and I think he might have even been talking about America. Uh, we live in the land of Protestantism without the Reformation. And I just mm. thought, man, is that not wow. true? So we have a lot of Protestant churches uh, where I'm at. We've got lots. In fact, I think we've got almost 700 churches within a 60-mile radius, the vast majority being Protestant, but without the Reformation. So the subtitle there is real important, the deliberately Protestant church. Mm. Uh, these things matter to us. And what we're really talking about is doctrine, doctrinal mm-hmm 
definitions and precision matter to us, but as we'll talk about, man, it matters because it's the stuff of life. We're not just talking about ideas on paper here. We're talking about the foundation of life. So yeah. wanted to uh, really mostly for my church, that's what most of my writing is geared towards the, the pew uh, inform and encourage them. I can't remember when this was published, but it was right around the 500 year anniversary when it was written. Mm. Uh, didn't, didn't get out for a little while. 2019. But, yeah. We uh we talk about it a lot every year though, especially around October. Yeah. And um, just wanting them to know. And so what are these five solas? Uh sola Latin for only. You have scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Hmm. And so those to me are some of the again, that's that's doctrine and devotion yeah. leading to uh doxology and discipleship, as Michael Horton would put it. So uh, just to run through them real briefly, um, a lot of these well, are in the. Con- go ahead. Let me, go let ahead. me bump in because when you say when you say the Protestant Church without the Reformation, what tease that out more because you're. It sounds like you're you're making a claim, and you're you're tracking Bonhoeffer's claim that we we kind of have a non-Catholic Church, but we don't have the Protestant roots. We we don't have the Protestant foundation still there. Tease that out a little bit more before we kind of walk through them one by one. Yeah, I mean, I think sadly the heart of it is uh, justification by faith alone. You know, if you asked just your average Protestant in America, you know, would you define for me justification by faith alone? Or you could generic, generically kind of have a leading question. In fact, Ligonier has done this. Ligonier and Lifeway, that study on the state of things in theology, it's super discouraging. Most people don't even in the head grasp the doctrine of justification by faith alone, even as Protestants. And man, if you don't have that, golly, there's so many implications for life that you're not going to have. And even here at a church that was well taught, um, coming in, we had a, we had a men's breakfast and we, I just covered Sola Fide and there were several people there. And, uh, I heard more than one who were raised in Baptist churches say, I've never been taught this. And that just breaks my heart. Um, so we just haven't taught, uh, we haven't taught theology and doctrine, you know, we're, a, we're a pragmatic people and we focus on therapeutic feel good type stuff. And we just have not catechized our people. We have not taught doctrinally in our preaching. And so we've got an anemic Protestant church that doesn't really even know what the reformation was about, much less still stand on these vital reformation truths that we find summarized in the five solas. You think there's yeah. a, a, like no, a ahead. default understanding do you think there's a default understanding that people have uh coming into the christian faith or coming into churches well i think the default mode of the human heart is is works righteousness self-salvation yeah yeah. that's why we've got to pound this home because every day we wake up as pelagians and when we when we're never instructed it uh you know we're in a bad spot yeah like anecdotally our uh, Youth minister, our youth minister here goes to the campus, the UA, uh, every week with a college student sharing the gospel and they encounter Christians on the campus. And he kind of just asks them what the gospel is. And he's never once gotten the gospel back. It's always been, uh, works righteousness or some, some version of that. So exactly what you're saying of, you know, God wants us to be good, uh, you know, basically we get, we've got to, we've got to earn it essentially is what, what usually we get back. Um, and it's, it's a product of their, of teaching. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah. 
like I was going to ask you one more question. You and I were sitting at lunch this week in Texas. Michael's in Alabama, so we didn't we didn't invite him. But That's messed up. <laughs> we, yeah, uh, you did that on purpose. Too. Do that in there. We were yeah. at a lunch, and one of a a state convention leader, a guy who's tenured, um, made a very clear point to a, a room full of pastors and some denominational leaders that the greatest challenge facing the Southern Baptist Convention is pragmatism. And you you mentioned that like that we're we're kind of given to pragmatism. What do you mean by pragmatism? Because that does seem to be something that's not just um you know kind of a, a methodology question, a peripheral question, but seem to be at the center of uh what really is part of the struggle for faithfulness in the church in the West. Yeah, I mean it kind of goes to one of these five solos, I think at the end of the day, Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone impacts everything we do. And so what is our motive and what is our end game? Is it big churches? Is it a large platform? Is it numerical results? Or is it to honor God? And to, to honor God, we're going to do God's work God's way. And so that's going to look way different than what's going to produce the most results. This is where theology matters so much, right? Some Someone can agree on a lot of basic things, but then it's our theology is worked out in methodology. And so if God's glory is our end and our aim, uh, yeah, we want to see results. We want to be faithful and fruitful, but our primary aim is to do God's work God's way. And so not looking for technique and, and uh, revivalism, we want revival. We don't want revivalism. And so it affects a lot. If our end game is pragmatism, which is doing whatever is going to produce the most results, whatever works versus what has God ordained for his glory, which is normally much looks much different. It's slower. Um, it's often inefficient. Uh, it's less visible in the immediate, but over time it's glorious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's really helpful. And, um, the, um, one of the, one of the passages comes up to mind with that is, um, second Corinthians chapter four, where Paul tells the church, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Um, we were we refuse to practice disgraceful, underhanded ways. So kind of you know selling candy to get church members. Um, you know creating uh, you know you, you, you bring them with the red wagon. Everyone I've heard this a thousand times. You bring them with the red wagon. You're gonna have to keep giving them another ride in the red wagon if they're gonna come to church. So that that kind of pragmatism. And so I think it's helpful that you've helped us kind of see already these these five souls where you've positioned them historically and today is not just kind of a well some people think this way some people have this kind of doctrine some people are five solo guys some aren't but you're you've kind of already argued that no this really is the fundamental of the Protestant Church in the West this really is the roots of what makes us not Catholic and what we think it means to be Christian. Uh, not just not just a kind of Christian, but these things are Christian in in their essence. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just walk through the five. Uh, what what are the five solas, and kind of give us some feedback on what they uh, what they meant uh, then and or now. And we might stop along the way and just talk about each one uh, and, and their importance uh, historically and today. 
Yeah, absolutely. So using the Latin, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And again, all these were formed in the context of the Reformation. So their immediate conversation partners is Rome, but it goes beyond Rome and really every on all five of them. But the idea is scripture alone is our final authority. Scripture is our norming norm in conversation with Rome. It's not scripture plus tradition. That's where the alone on all of these are really important. Uh, so scripture alone is our final authority. We have what we need there. It's sufficient. Uh, and then Christ alone, he is our only mediator. Uh, he's all we need. We don't need other co-redeemers. We don't need anything else. He's, his work needs no supplementation. In fact, we learn from Colossians and Galatians to add to him is actually, is actually to detract from him, to subtract from him. So Christ alone is our savior. Faith alone, primarily being justification by faith alone in those contexts instead of faith plus works. It's faith alone. Uh, Galatians and Romans are given largely to that, that doctrine. Uh, grace alone, not grace plus human effort. Uh, here we're thinking of uh, God's initiative, thinking of uh, the technical term monergism, mono, ergase, one doing the work. God alone does the work. Uh, God doesn't need our help. He's the initiator. He gets all glory, which leads to the, the fifth one, glory to God alone. So all of these doctrines kind of culminate in that, but they're also the, the motive, right? Um, that when we articulate things this way, God gets the glory uh, more than any other way. So again, most of that's in, in context with Rome, which by the way, I always want to remind people, we're still protesting. You know, Trent is still standing. Rome is hard to nail down today, um, but it's, we're still capital P Protestant churches. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book that came out a few years ago. I think they gave it out it together for the gospel. Are we together by RC Sproul? And it's on Protestant churches and Catholic churches asking the questions. Can we really say that we are kind of on the same team theologically? Are we believing the same gospel? And uh, I'll just let the answer hang in the air and, and maybe let our listeners uh, assume what R.C. Sproul might think. <laughs> I think the answer would be pretty obvious. Um, uh, Michael, jump in here, but Blake, do you do you see any any of those five? Are they kind of hierarchical in their importance? Are they kind of, you know, is there one that's kind of a, a product of the other, one that's most challenged in the West or most absent in the West that's most important for us? Yeah, I mean, I think the glory of God and scripture kind of is the bookends and it's, you know, both of them go together, right? Because if we want God to get the glory, we're going to prioritize his word. If we prioritize his word, God's going to get the glory. Um, but scripture is so clear. I mean, so explicitly crystal clear on all these matters. So it, it can be the fountainhead. If we get that right, all the rest is going to come together. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think we could probably look at all of them and be discouraged about the state of the Protestant church. But that would be the main one. That would be the main one. Biblical illiteracy is is at an all-time high, seemingly. And uh, we're cutting cutting everything to now where we have, you know, the average average American Protestant church is probably a 20-minute sermon Sunday morning only, maybe home groups where, you know, the word may or may not be handled carefully, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Bible reading down. So if we're just getting minimal intake of the Bible, of course we're going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And if you look at the, the cultural winds, uh, they're opposed to all of these uh, five solos and at fundamental ways. Well, that brings up a question for me then. I, I think it's, it, why, why not just say, hey, Blake, why, why do you have to be the five solos guy? 
why do you have to write a book on the five solas and talk about the five solas and teach the five solas? Why don't you just teach the Bible? Right? We, we're already so biblically illiterate, to use your phrase. We, we don't know the Bible. We don't read the Bible. So why are we talking like this? Why don't we just read the Bible? What would you say to someone who had that response? Well, that's a amen. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, that's part of the part of the goal then is is to be Bible people. It just so happens that as we're teaching the Bible, these truths come to the surface quite regularly, actually. But uh, these are just a good good summary statement to talk about the heart of things. So we don't need them. Absolutely. We don't need them. But they are a good historic summary of what we think the scripture teaches, not like in a confessional way, but as a summary of what is the heart of the Protestant Reformation? What is our DNA as deliberate Protestants. It's just a good, helpful summary to teach scripture. So yes, and amen. I feel like if churches would do faithful expositional preaching week in and week out, we would never even, we certainly wouldn't need a book like mine or historically we would be doing it, but therein lies the problem. There's a famine in the land in our pulpits. So do you you think there's one element of these or one of the five solas that people in churches, in Protestant churches, push back against uh, the most? And if so, h- how do you see it? How do you see the pushback? Uh, I would assume that there's probably not many people in your church going, uh, I'm with you on four of them, but Solus Christus, you know, no way. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that that's probably not something you get very often, but how do you notice pushback against one or, or more of these? And is there one that is in particular more pushback against than others? In my experience, which is uh, limited for sure, but there hasn't been a lot of pushback towards them, uh, except for the fact that when scripture is in the driver's seat, you know, the the spirit's going to cut both ways. That's going to edify the sheep and repel the goats. So when you're working through scripture, various hard parts of scripture are going to, so, so, but that's just any faithful ministry. That's not specific to the five solas. Uh, but when you when you end up teaching these to to the church to regenerate people, I mean they're they're fed, you know, they see it, and so I haven't seen a lot of pushback. Actually, I see um, just vistas of joy opening up because they're learning about God's glory, God's grace, what it means to be a Christian, the the goodness, sufficiency, and errancy of the Word. Um, so when when folks who know the Lord, and that's key, right? Regenerate people. Um, they're exposed to these truths. It's, it's a delight. Usually I haven't had a lot of pushback to these specifically. Yeah. Now that's overt pushback, right? And that's less my concern. And honestly, Rome is less my concern. Um, what I'm more worried about is the functional stuff, the doubting of God's goodness, uh, of basing my relationship with God on how I did that day or listening to reason or culture instead of scripture, those sorts of temptations that every Christian is, is uh, tempted by. That's where it gets really practical. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, I think that's really helpful. It, it makes me, it makes me wonder if you, I mean, it's almost kind of like the five solas and really any sound doctrine that gets down to God being the one who saves us that it it's just it's kind of like garlic like it either repels you <laughs> like a vampire or it uh or you just can't get enough of it you it just lights your soul on fire it awakes your soul to sing it 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 is your joy it is your thankfulness and i it just seems to me like all the five souls work that way where you know if it's what what's 
what, what in your heart or in your doctrine, and, and I think usually, you can tell me what you think about this, but I think usually it's not even a theological disposition that anybody would have a hard time with any of the five solas. It's usually a heart disposition. Nope. Scripture alone means uh, zero opinions and zero personal preferences, and, and uh, that I really hold up Scripture as the sole authority in God's revelation. Uh, and in Jesus Christ and his spirit uh, themselves. Christ alone means that I bring zero. I just bring nothing to my own salvation. I, I, I deserve damnation. I, I don't deserve anything good from God because I've taken good and I've used it for evil. And so it's kind of like, well, what do we have to push back on? Like what it, it would be a, yeah, uh, it would just be strange, uh, and, and it kind of reveal less kind of a doctrinal position, and it would it would start to sound you know kind of kind of make alarm bells go off in regards to the heart disposition. Has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely, man. And again, I'm in my own heart. I can speak in my own mm-hmm. heart. I remember hearing Piper one time say, "I got to wake up every morning and be saved." Yeah. So this idea of uh, I don't know who originated it. It might have been Lloyd Jones, but this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. Um, this is where it matters just to me personally and our people. I mean, just to give one anecdote of my most recent uh, counseling, um, young gal who um, been in a Baptist church for you know her whole life and had a trial about a year ago and had basically moved away from the church, uh, started to question God and we're meeting, we're talking and working through some things. And so this trial comes and here's where the theology comes, right? The trial comes, how will then I process it? How will I think about God? How will I think about my circumstances? Is he for me? Is he against me? She moved away. And a little bit further in the conversation, we start talking about um, her her salvation. And I just asked her, do you, do you think you're saved? And she says, I've never doubted my salvation for 14 years until now this year, because I'm not suffering like Christians should suffer. She was having a hard time with this trial and she knew it. And I said, do you trust that Christ is the savior? Yeah, by faith alone. Yeah. Of course I do. And I said, are you justified, declared in the right by suffering? Well, well, no. Are you justified by faith in Christ? And her, I mean, you just saw the quarter drop by faith. But here she was starting to lose assurance. Why? Because she's looking inward rather than outward. Okay. I'm taking this hard, not like Christians should. And so then her assurance is based upon her performance instead of the finished work of Christ. So Robert McShane, right? For every one look inside, look, take 10 outside. So she knew, she knew the doctrine, but because our default mode is self-salvation, we need it preached every day, every week. So this is where this, it helps you suffer well. Okay, my standing is secure. I'm not doing well in this. I know that I want to do better, but my standing with God is secure. Why? Because Christ died in my place. Uh, brother, I just think when it's you, so helpful because, and I'm going to give it to Michael, because I, I think a temptation is to hear five solas, Reformation, theology, uh, history, <laughs> and just hear words like that thrown around and just think, you know what, that is that is old, we are past that, that's been fixed, and it's for, it's for heady people, and it's for thinkers. And and you just you just made it applicable to us every single day, in mm-hmm. uh, so many circumstances. Is is it solely by Christ, solely by faith? If so, then 
you know, how I do in that trial uh, means my security and my assurance and my joy and my, my relief and my rest from myself and my own sin, my own inability. I just think that's a really helpful connection mm-hmm. for us to consider and, and ought to make more of us want to go, okay, that's accessible. The five solos are accessible and doctrine is practical um, for my own soul and my own comfort in, in any trial. Really helpful connection there, I think. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're, <clears throat> when we're looking at Sola Scriptura, um, that scripture is kind of driving the conversation, if you will, as I think you, you said earlier, how, how do we balance our reading of the scripture with, there's 2000 years of church history of others reading the scripture and speaking into how it should be interpreted and 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 things like that how do we balance me and my bible with there's other people that can help me understand this too right that yeah so talk about that like how sola scriptura works with me on my couch reading my bible yeah yeah absolutely and sola scriptura gets mischaracterized a lot of times i think um new to scripture is if it's the only thing well it's not we have a high view of history, namely because it's the Holy Spirit's work, right? And so anytime we're looking at a passage and it's new, (laughs) we've got problems, which is really relevant today in a lot of cultural issues, right? Whether it comes to same-sex marriage or uh, egalitarianism, you know, it's helpful to say, actually, you know, I hold the view that the church has held for 2,000 years. And when we, when we stray from that, we ought to be real, have lots of red flags. Now, having said that, I'm a Baptist. And so, you know, in the grand scheme of church history, it's a newer movement, um, coming out of the Reformation. So um, I think it's really important and helpful for us to be conversant with, with history, to be aware of creeds and confessions and, and doing theology and community. And, you know, here, one of the ways we do that is we push the ESV study Bible uh, like candy here. And so when it comes to Bible reading, as you're reflecting on the text, one of, one of quick default ways is just to look. And if what I'm taking away here, is this, is this at odds with you know, a tradition that, again, different texts are different, well, different land with different commenta- commentators, but uh, the grand the grand Protestant stream will be represented in a Bible like that. But knowing confessions, and we talk about where we hold it at our church, the Baptist faith and message, but whatever your confession would be, Westminster, 1689, whatever it is to be uh, consulting that, reading along with it. But there are times when, when uh, we Baptists have felt led to... Uh, stray because we are convinced that the plain reading of scripture is at, at odds. And there's a lot of ways that that can be the case with different traditions. One of the things though, to keep coming back to is Protestants should agree, should agree on these, these five. So whether we land as Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, um, we should land, we should all be more deliberately Protestant on these things. And, and we're not, but I'm not sure if that helps. I mean, I'd love to hear from y'all on that. No, I think that's great. Personally, Michael. Yeah. My, my big, bigger concern with this and ours is just how much, how many hours of formative content our people are receiving throughout the week mm. that's basically anti-Christ versus how many hours of content they're getting from their word or, or you know, what we're doing. And man, we're losing that battle. Yeah. What, so how does a, how does a pastor, ahead. like, how does a pastor go into a uh, church ministry and, and prioritize scripture alone um in in his in his ministry 
in the church. Yeah, I mean, prayer, uh, perseverance, preaching. I think part of it is, especially what kind of church you're going into, is is beginning exposition right from the beginning, working through books of the Bible, text by text, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and the Spirit promises to use the Word, and sometimes it's slow going, but in that, you're feeding the sheep, and they're being nourished, and they're going to grow. God promises that. The main means he uses to grow his people is his word. So teaching and preaching faithfully right from the beginning and uh, loving people well and letting God do his work over time. I think I heard Mark Dever one time say, you know, begin an expositional ministry and see what God will do in five or 10 years. So that, that does the work and it changes people's appetites and it gives them a hunger for the word and it gives them a distaste for the world and a hatred of sin. But of course, as y'all know, it just, it takes time and it's slow and two steps forward, one step back. And, but I think that's the main thing is expositional preaching has got to drive everything, not just the pulpit, other ministries as well, but primarily the pulpit, starting an expositional ministry and modeling it. And it, five, 10 years later, you have a different church and people that'll never be the same. That's what's really exciting. I don't know about y'all's ministry experience. I was in one really, really hard, dysfunctional uh, revitalization situation probably lots of unregenerate people on the rolls, but there were some regenerate people who had never, sadly, I mean, some in their eighties had never heard expositional preaching where the point of the sermon comes right out of the passage. And, uh, and they were, they were never the same, never the same. And so that's really encouraging when people get a taste, when the sheep get a taste of the word, they're changed. Yeah. I think that's helpful because I think there are a lot of people, uh, pastors, teachers, convention leaders who would say they adhere to sola scriptura and they would even say they adhere to expositional preaching and even narrower scope but when it comes down to it it's kind of like well i don't i'm not sure we mean the same thing by expositional preaching or by sola scriptura what would what would be uh you you just kind of used a phrase the, the point of the text being the point of your sermon Expound that a little bit more and how you see the application of Sola Scriptura in the church's life and in the Christian's life, uh, more than just using the Bible in the pulpit, uh, which ought to be the simplest base given. <laughs> uh, but it's it's not it's just not today. Uh, it's not as concrete a conviction. But how does that get worked out? And how does Sola Scriptura get worked out in a church, uh, even you know past the pulpit even? Yeah, man. And yeah, that's huge. That's so huge. Cause like, yeah, I mean, you know, that there are so many that would affirm everything, all five of these, but specifically even exposition. I mean, I've, I've been shocked to learn it, what passes for exposition. So yeah, you've got to mm-hmm. double click on some of those things. And I think it's helpful in our preaching and in our discipling and everything we can do to get after the author's intent. Now, postmodernism has infected us in so many ways that we don't even know it. And so that's where some of the danger of like, if we're going to just have a 20 minute sermon ed and then home groups and home groups are just, Hey, what'd that mean to you? Well, to me, that meant to me, that meant, and you have all this, you know, postmodern hermeneutics going on as if it can mean more than one thing when it means one thing. And that's what we want to get after in our interpretation is what did the author intend in his context? And so when we're preaching, I think we can teach how we got there, you know, and that's what I think good exposition does. It keeps your nose in the text. Why do I say that? Well, because the four right there, it connects these two verses. So as we model, the scripture has one meaning 
And that's what we're after. I mean, that goes a long way. What did the author intend when he communicated this passage? Not just so, something that I want to use and turn into a wax nose and it fits whatever I want to say. But again, modeling that week after week, month yeah. after month, year after year, uh, I think people begin to get a sense of that. And then when they go and they see the Bible used, David Helms mm-hmm. famous inebriated preaching, you know, leaning, using the Bible like a drunk uses a light post more for mm-hmm. support than illumination. Really good analogy. They smell mm-hmm. it. I think after they've been under good actual text driven exposition, they smell when the Bible's being used rather than expounded. So let me, let me back up on something there because I think you might be stepping on some toes. You know, you might, you might hurt some people's feelings if you're not careful, Blake. So for example, we're in a small group and our small group is functionally everyone go around and say what this verse means to you. And I remember uh, one of my first few months in a Sunday school class here at this church, which is 10 years ago now, and they were in John 6, uh, which has some extremely Calvinistic phrases in it um, that should have at least brought up a conversation about God's sovereignty. And in a room full of 12 or 15, that was a conversation. This is the passage. We read it out loud. We read it out loud. What about it? And what I just heard you say was that is a hermeneutic, an approach to Scripture, a a study and a handling of Scripture. It's contra to Sola Scriptura. Tell us us more about what you're getting at and and how that works because I just think that's a really common today way of picking up the bible and dealing with it what does everyone think about it what do you what do you mean by that because i think you're onto something yeah well and this is where you're you're you know jane in the home group probably has never read jock derrida but has been influenced by this reader response hermeneutic as if meaning is found here mm. rather than right here right this is where the meaning's found not right here and so pounding home the fact that there's one meaning. Now it can be meaningful to believers in different ways, and there can be multiple applications, but I think we've got to correct it and say, you know, there's one meaning in John 6. Now you may be wrong, I may be wrong, but what we want to get after is what did John intend in writing John 6 rather than just going around? It can't mean multiple things to multiple people. Mm-hmm. But that's against the air we breathe. And you know, that's where our work is and our preaching, teaching, discipling is we want to get after the author's intent. Yeah, I think so- I just heard the weeping and gnashing of teeth in so many home groups just now. <laughs> just <laughs> scream. I can feel it. Yeah, I can feel it right now. Yeah. I'm gonna get emails from that one. Uh I'm just kidding. Um I'm curious. So we you got Sola Scriptura. I'm curious in the relationship between um, faith alone and grace alone, uh, because you you kind of touched on you know beforehand that we're kind of functional Pelagians, which I want you to kind of unpack just a little bit. But then the relationship between grace alone and faith alone, some might explain that as grace alone is God extending to me a hand faith alone is me reaching out and taking it. And how would you respond to that? And uh, yeah, I'll just, how would you respond to that? Yeah. Well, that's default mode, right? Or God helps those who help themselves type. That's what I mean. Pelagianism. We we've lost our doctrine of sin um, today. Right. Because again, because where we're at culturally, we don't talk about sin nearly enough. 
Uh, and there's tons of overlap, especially between grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Historically, the, con- the conversation of faith alone has focused in on justification. Uh, and grace is a broader encapsulation that really encompasses all of it, uh, showing that God does the work. And of course, part of that is that faith, our faith that we must exercise, is actually a grace gift, right? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Philippians 1, 29, repentance, you must repent. Uh, that that's also a gift. And so grace is guarding um, God's initiative and not uh, not allowing any mixture of human effort. So they play alongside each other really well. Language we often use by faith through grace or or by grace through faith, just to emphasize when we truly understand faith, we're going to get grace. When we understand grace, we're going to get faith. And the 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 motive from five soulless people, and I think found in scripture, is to to guard, even the apostle Paul is jealous to ensure God gets the glory. You know, he says that all the time. I just mentioned Ephesians 2. What's the purpose clause in that verse? So that no one may boast. I was reading Galatians 4 recently, and it's funny because he's talking about now that you know God, and he has to like pause, rather are known by God. He's just jealous to have that accent on God getting the glory because it's grace, not human effort. How does that change a person's perspective on their own salvation if they get those things right? Oh man, everything, right? Everything. It, it becomes, we realize, we realize, you know, we get small and God gets big, which is really the foundation for worship. And worship is tied with humility and joy and assurance. So it changes everything, it changes everything. We, we, God becomes God. The Godness of God enters in and we realize just how poor and pitiful we are. The only thing we contribute is the need for it. <laughs> and so he gets all the glory and we get all the joy. And so we realize, man, if it weren't for him, there would, I would just have no hope. And some of our testimonies make that more clear than others. You know, my testimony, it's really easy to believe that uh, because I was saved later. I was saved at 18 freshman in uh, college, but others it's harder to believe because of their testimony. For me, it was really easy to, to believe in God's sovereign initiating grace because I was with a bunch of people and God called me and didn't call the rest of the people that I was just like. So, but it, it changes, it changes uh, everything. And again, when we're talking about the stuff of life, you know, we become humble people because we realize who we are. We become gracious people because we realize how God, how gracious God has been to us. It should change us in that way. You know, we, we who know how badly we need grace should be really quick to give grace and be gracious, humble people talking about joy. Well, we have all we need. We've contributed nothing. The only thing we deserve in this world is damnation and we don't get it because of Christ. Uh, assurance is a big one. We've kind of talked a little, little bit about it, but that's one of the hearts. One of the big difference, obviously with Rome is the doctrine of assurance. And if we don't have assurance, again, we're not going to have any of the other things. We're going to be really insecure people really anxious people because we don't know where we stand with God. We also won't take risks in terms of mission unless we know we're good. We need to have that solid foundation in order to risk and live hard lives for the glory of God. So it changes everything. That's why I love this stuff. When we get it, and we got to get it, we got to do that that doctrinal intellectual work here for it to get to the heart level. So it's not like we can bypass thinking hard, but the fruit of thinking hard about these things it's life giving, man. Yeah. yeah. So would you say it's fair? It's fair to say that that all of these uh, solas are really pointing to the fifth one, um, to the glory. I say the fifth one, like there's a proper order, but to the glory of God alone. Like, 
the four are kind of bubbling up to that. Yeah, I think it's a good culmination, man. Yeah. And I think, you know, one one test for theology is like if we're looking at various views of things, in which view does God receive more glory? That's probably the right one. (laughs) (laughs) Good way to look at it. Anytime, anytime there's a view that gives man the glory, we're probably off. Yeah, that's good. I like what you said a minute ago, because you, you basically helped us really understand the importance of the Reformation and the importance of what happened, uh, the five solas coming out of the Roman church. It was not a, well, you guys are preaching the gospel and you have a doctrine like this. And, you know, when we step back and think about it, yeah, we believe the gospel too, but we have other doctrine that's really important to us. And it's kind of a pet project that, you know, we're our high theologians have gotten together and and we have a different way of thinking about some things. And these are the really finite details of theology. And we just need to kind of uh, agree to disagree uh, about some points on on doctrine. But what you just described is no, Rome's not preaching the gospel. They are preaching works-based salvation historically. And the five solas represent the gospel of how someone is saved, which is extremely different than saying we've just kind of arrived at a set of doctrine that is kind of uh, unique to us. So I, I just think that's really helpful to consider the importance of you know what you're what you're talking about that and, and what this means historically, uh, because there was a separation of church. There was an entire rejection of the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the time and today. Uh, so I think that's huge. So Blake, can, can I ask real ahead. quick on because uh, uh, what you just brought up, Nathan, I think is really important. And I, I'm, I'm curious, Blake, how do we think about our Catholic friends? Um, you know, what, what, what do we, you know, I, I, I have, I know a number of people, even in my congregation, who are, are, are like, how do I, how do I process my Catholic neighbor? What do I do with that? Do I share the gospel with them? They seem when they say, when they sit down at my table that, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, we don't pray to Mary or I don't, you know, I, I reject that part of it. I, I don't really like that part of it, but I, I, I like this part of it and, and that kind of thing. And h- how do we, you know, how do we process, how do we even think about them? Yeah, man. Good question. Relevant question. Cause we all and all our members have friends and family that are there. Um, anecdotally, it was interesting just the other day, we were, you know, it's October 31st reformation day. So we're going to highlight that. And I, uh, was going to talk about it actually did a little bit of biography on Tyndale and then just talked about scripture, scripture alone. Um, but there was a new member, uh, Saturday we were hanging out and she was like, Hey, my parents are going to come tomorrow. And I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, they're staunch Catholic. How's that going to go? And I was like, oh, man, October 31st. That's either the worst day or the best day. To take to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it, I mean, at first gut response needs to be brokenness for them and a burden for them. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, there are things to debate. But most most Roman Catholics that aren't in leadership are just ignorant of their own theology and certainly ignorant of the Bible. And so we ought to have a brokenness for them. I believe there are many that are regenerate in the Roman Catholic Church, despite their doctrine. Because they, How is that? Because they're trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And mm-hmm. just don't know anything about the Council of Trent. Haven't you even kind of heard. Mean, d- despite the official doctrine of the church, 
they yeah. actually have a genuine faith in Christ. They are trusting. So, so would that well, is that doctrine, right? Or just is that similar to the the Christian that's sitting in Joel Osteen's church, or the Christian that's sitting in a prosperity gospel preaching church? Is it similar to that? Is it analogous that way? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, and here's the beauty of grace, right? We're justified by faith alone. We're not justified by believing in justification by faith alone. <laughs> there's a lot of Catholics that are that way. They trust Christ and their only hope is Christ. Blew they're just mind. malnourished and mistaught. And they probably, a lot of them that I've encountered, they don't even know the doctrine. It's just, mm, they've right. grown up with it. So burden, burden is the first response and a brokenness. Cause even if they're believers, they're so malnourished because they don't understand assurance and grace and joy and all the things we're talking about. But, but that's the, the next question that is to, to try to discern. Um, are they, are they, uh, regenerate or not, are they trusting in Christ? And so I always tell our folks, go to the gospel, right? For number one, you know, it's the power of God in salvation, Romans 1, 16. It's the gospel that God's going to use to save, not debating about Mary or, or transubstantiation. So go right to the heart of things, guilt and assurance and grace. What do you think about those things? Just asking them questions. Um, and here I'm in Abilene where we have ACU. So we've got a lot of churches of Christ and they're hard to nail down nowadays, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of them also don't understand this doctrine. Many deny it uh, because of their inclusion of baptism. So we have these conversations a lot and want to try to equip to do evangelism, but also want people to understand the seriousness of it. If they're self, if they do understand their doctrine, right? Let me just read from Galatians one. I know probably most of the listeners are shaving or at the gym or whatever, but it'd be, good to, it'd be good to open it up. But let me read. Remember the context of Galatians, right? They had believed in Christ alone. These people come in and say, Jesus plus, faith plus, uh, obeying the law. So the heart of it is about justification. In fact, let me just read one passage, then I want to go to Galatians once to talk about Rome a little bit. Galatians 2.16 is one of my favorite passages to go to for this, because he says the same thing three different times. He's rebuking uh, Peter, and he says, we know, we know, which also is important. Galatians is probably the first letter written very early, and they already knew this, right? This isn't some new or late edition. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How how could he be any clearer? <laughs> yeah. And so for Paul, justification by faith is at the heart of the gospel. Now, when we're sharing the gospel, we don't have to use that language. But if we're not talking about sin and forgiveness and guilt and grace and faith alone, we're not talking about the gospel. So Paul, in Galatians 3.8, he almost equates them, justification in the gospel. So that's what this letter is about, justification by faith alone. So let me go back and show how he introduces the letter in six. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So when we distort this gospel, it becomes no gospel, becomes another gospel. But listen to these. These are some of the most shocking verses in the Holy Testament to me. 1.8. But even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Whoa. He's not done though. He's like, wait, were you listening? Let me say it again. Verse nine, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
And so where you have anyone teaching that you add anything besides faith, you fall under this anathema. The irony is that Trent used this very language to say that if someone believes that you're justified by faith alone, let him be anathema, literally turning these words on their heads. And so this is a this is about it. This is as harsh a warning as you can get here. And so he says, even if Paul comes back, even if an angel, if R.C. Sproul comes down right now over my shoulder and says, what Blake is saying is false. Justification is not by faith alone. It's by faith plus works. What are we to tell old angelic R.C.? Go to hell. See ya. Yeah. Verse says, wow. let him be accursed. That's so incredible, which is so encouraging, too, to show that this message, this faith is not bound up with people. Not even the apostles, not experiences, not even an angel, but a message. And that message at its heart is justification by faith only. So it's it really couldn't be more serious when it comes to talking about this doctrine, at least according to the Apostle Paul. So what role does works play in the life of a Christian? Yeah, so that works are necessary, just not as a basis, right? Not as a basis, but as evidence. And again, we're in Galatians. So, you know, Galatians 1, 2, and 3, he's got this contrast again and again and again. Faith not works. Faith not works. Faith not works. Pounds at home. And then he gets into chapters 5 and 6 and says the only thing that matters is faith working through yeah. love. You know, with a wordplay uh, and the call is to love. So works are necessary. We just got to get them on the right side of the equation. And then when we get back to assurance and joy, I think that's so huge. I think most of our people are operating with the wrong salvation equation. So they think it's faith plus works equals salvation instead of salvation by faith and then works. You know, I think Keller says uh, something like the operating principle of the gospel is I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. And every other religion, Rome included, is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And if we don't get that order right, again, the stuff of life's not going to fall through. We're not going to suffer well. Not We're gonna, not going to be joyful. We're not going to have assurance. We're not going to be motivated to share the gospel. We understand that we're saved not by works, but for works, not for a position, but from a position. Changes everything, right? That's again, that's Ephesians 2 8 10. Not saved, not by works, but for good works that God ordained that we should walk in them. So works are important. They're just important on the on the right side of the equation. And that changes the heart level in a huge way. So do you think that's how the book of James is written? Yeah. It's I think written. So. Yeah. For an after- I've always kind of taken it this way. I explain it when people ask about works is Romans 4, for example, will answer the question: are we saved by faith or works? The answer is we are saved by faith. Before Abraham did anything, he was justified as righteous. The question that James 2 is answering is what kind of faith saves you? Yeah. And it's if, if you have a faith that has no works, that is a qualitative problem. It's a faith that is dead. Live faith that actually saves actually works. So it, it it's, you know... And James's point is the demons believe and shudder. The demons have yeah. faith, right? First, The first person that Jesus encounters is in the book of Mark who recognizes him and believes who he is is a demon <laughs> in Mark chapter 1. Yeah. You know, yeah. they know who he is. They have faith that Jesus is the son of God uh, and that they're in trouble. Um, they don't trust him. It's not a, it's not a qualitative faith like, like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think that's so important because especially in the world that we live in right now, well, maybe that's because it's always been this way, but 
but it, faith gets interpreted as a cognitive assent, mm-hmm. right? To belief. I mean, I, I know I know people very well who hold that idea of their own salvation is that I cognitively believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that He died, that He rose from the dead. Um, but there is nothing on the back end of that that would ever testify to the fact that they would have a biblical belief, like a true faith in it. Cause there's literally no fruit. There's no works that come on the back end of that. Right. And so, you know, what is the saying that, that faith that actually saves is never alone. You know, there's always accompanying works that, that come along afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. I'm sorry. I interrupted. No, you're fine. I'm, I'm preaching through revelation and right now I'm in chapters 12 through 14 and uh, I know there are several passages that have to have to do with works being the adornment of the church. Uh, it's an ex- extremely important uh, piece of uh, the church's relationship to God. So, um, Blake, let's say we we went online, we we bought a box of a hundred of your little eighty-page book here. What would be, what would be a good use for it? What would someone who picks this up? Other than just reading it for their own personal edification, how have you used this in your church, or how, how would you recommend maybe we we you know people handle this subject together? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, th- it's super short, so you can knock it out really quickly. Um, there's there's better books and bigger books if you want to go deeper. But it's I was trying to make it just an introduction to someone that's just new, new, yeah. new to the faith or new to sound doctrine. Uh, to give them a, you know, an entry into it. I talk a little bit about Luther's story, which is just a ton of fun uh, and then just get at some of the the heart of it. So it's just a really good entry level to, to the uninitiated, whether that be just handing it out or reading it with them, that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's how it's been fruitful. The length and the length and the accessibility are what I think are, are helpful about this book. There's other resources that were helpful to you or you would recommend to either pastors or church members. Yeah, if you want to take a next step, um, there's a series on there was a pretty weighty, fairly academic book um, that's on all these. There's, there's five books, probably average about two, 250 pages each. Uh, there's a little one by Jason, edited by Jason Allen. It's really good. It's probably about the same size. I think it's called Sola or Sola, something like that. There's a book by that's really good by Boyce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce and Riken. I think it's called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace. Uh, it's dated, but really good. Uh, there's a there's a the Cambridge Declaration. We use it in our membership class as uh, just a very brief explanation of these five solas. Um, so you could Google, just Google Cambridge Declaration. Um, I would say um, for pastors, if you haven't read the chap two chapters, one chapter in Piper's Brothers, uh, we're not professionals, whatever the title of that book is. You got a chapter in there called Preach and Live: Justification by Faith Alone fantastic. And one final one uh, I would mention is in Martin Lloyd-Jones book, Spiritual Depression. I think it's chapter two. Um, it's on the foundation and that we give out to our people. It's, we use it in counseling. Um, and the part of it is that what's at the heart of our problem, we haven't appropriated justification by faith alone. I just think, uh, I just think so many of our problems are at root level, not grasping that doctrine. Mm-hmm. Super helpful. Amen. How do we well, get your book? Uh, Amazon would probably be the easiest way. Just, just search call Blake you. White. You want to give us your phone? You want to hand your phone number out so we can just call you? <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
yeah, it's uh, A Blake White, the five solos. My first name's Anthony, so thanks, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Every well, every good author goes by initials, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have good initials. Yeah. Blake, man, listen, thank you so much, brother, for your your faithfulness out there in Abilene. Thanks for your your friendship, your uh, also your service to our convention. Uh, you were on the Coob this week, the Committee on the Order of Business. Uh, so I know that was a, just a pure 48-hour joy uh, yeah. for you <laughs> this week. So thanks for serving in that way at the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. But Sorry. man, thank you for writing this book, for taking the time to get it out there and get it published, and uh, for being an example for Michael and myself just on uh, putting these things out there. And just for helping us think through these things today, uh, it's a joy. I trust it'll be a, a help to our listeners and, and a good introduction to your book. I hope some uh, some of our listeners go online, pick it up, use it for themselves if, if we don't do it as a church. So uh, appreciate you a ton. Michael, any, any last thoughts, man? I don't know how you have time to write. <laughs> you pastor a church. You have kids. You have kids. You're married. How do you write? How do you have time? Uh, I'm a geek with very few hobbies besides my kids. You don't play golf. You don't do any of that. No. Nathan and I play t- way too much golf. I'm convinced of it <laughs> yeah. now. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you brothers. Uh, glad to be here today. Yeah. I look forward to your book on Job. Is that coming, <laughs> is that coming soon? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, 2047. Yeah. <laughs> the heart of, Hey, tell me, tell me if the heart of Job is not justification righteousness oh man i mean come on it's there justification by faith alone it's 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 coming in right out of job so man have a great week thanks so much for your time and uh god bless you brother hope to see you again soon thanks for listening to the fire and bones podcast if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you and most importantly share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links including our contact information feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the fire and bones podcast